Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we study this section, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, last week we talked about Peter and John healing the, healing the lame man. They go into the, into the temple uh, to worship, and we saw them start to the defense of, because everybody's looking at this and they think it's crazy, uh, they're, and they're going, why are you looking at us as if we did this? And then we find what usually happens is the priests and everybody get involved. So, just like it did when Jesus' day. So chapter 4, verse 1. And as they spoke unto the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught in the te- with the people and preached through, through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day, for it was now evening tide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of men was 5,000. So we're going to stop there for just a moment. They, they had started this little message, remember, they talked about how the people had killed Jesus and all of that. And what's going on here is all of a sudden you've got this group of guys over here, two guys, teaching a whole bunch of people. And the priest and the, and the Sadducees and the temple and the captain of the temple do just what anybody in the church would do. Who is this over here teaching... <laughs> You know, in our, in our place that hasn't gone through the approval process. Uh, now, the problem is that in the temple court, you were allowed to teach. So it shouldn't have drawn that much attention. But they're looking over and saying, uh, these guys aren't rabbis. They're not, they're not part of the approved group. They're, we don't even really know who they are. And they're over there getting a crowd, uh, which kind of bothers them. And note the group, the priests, the temple, the guard, the captain of the temple, and, and the Sadducees. All right, and it's kind of interesting because they came upon them and in verse two. What's their big problem is they were being grieved, and this word for grieved is that they were uh, complete in the labor. So they're looking at these guys and they're they're saying these guys. You almost see them saying getting kind of jealous for one thing, but. They taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees did not believe in the supernatural. They did not believe in resurrection. All right? So here are the two disciples talking about the resurrection of Jesus, and the group that doesn't believe in resurrection is coming over there and saying, basically, what are you doing here in the temple teaching about the resurrection? And later on, we'll see Paul do the same thing. He'll have a, he's in trouble, and you'll see that the group is part Sadducees and part Pharisees, and the Pharisees believed in the resurrection and the supernatural. And then he claims, I, I believe in the resurrection, and all of a sudden, they're battling with each other <laughs> rather than holding the trial for Paul. Um, and it says, they laid hands on them and put them in the hold or the prison cell. And the reason being, it was evening time. Now, the thing about this, remember, they, the third hour, they were coming together to, to pray at 3 o'clock. They'd healed it, they healed this man, then they'd gone in the temple. They'd been teaching. So it's 4 or 5 o'clock in the evening. The sun's getting ready to go down. People need to be home before the sun's down. And for the Jews, it's against the law to have court at night. Even though they held the court at night for Jesus, 
It was, it was one of the many things that were wrong with what happened to Jesus is, is a night court and all these other things that they did. So they say, okay, we're just going to hold, we're going to put him in a prison cell overnight and then we will convene in the morning. So they were put, in, put into prison overnight and then it says, but, or how be it, how, but many of them which heard the word believed and the number of men was about 5,000. All right, we got 8,000 people recorded having joined the church since the Pentecost. Now you can think about this. Why were, why did they grab the attention of the priest? And the captain of the guard, 5,000 converted. How many was in that crowd? <laughs> These guys had gathered a crowd bigger than probably any other rabbi in the court. And they're getting a little nervous. What is going on? It would be one thing if you just grabbed five, six, you know, a dozen, two or three dozen, and teaching them. But they had a minimum of 5,000 people there. And I'm sure they didn't get 100%. Uh, conversion rate. So they might have had as many as 20,000 people around them, you know, preaching. And they had drawn on a crowd because this lame man was leaping and going and, and jumping around and being crazy. And they, had, they saw power. They saw the power of God and many people got converted. And they've gotten a crowd there that drew the attention of the leaders and they put him in a little holding cell for overnight. And this is what's going on. But you know, on the Pentecost, 3,000 people were added to, to the church. They just added 5,000 to the church. So we had 8,000 people in the first two big events. Uh, and Peter is becoming quite an evangelist here. Peter preached at Pentecost and saw 3,000. He preached in the temple and got 5,000. Uh, you know, but it's very interesting because he's preaching to a good crowd a crowd who already believes in the messiah the messiah's coming a crowd that already understands that sin they understand who god is and people in history and even in, in things go well peter was a really good preacher and look how many people because it never tells us that paul led this many people to the lord but paul did not teach to jews his first thing was to teach them who god was what sin was and then get them converted uh, in America, for many years, we had that same process. We talked to a lot of people who were more like the Jews. They knew who God was. They knew what sin was. It was pretty easy to get conversions. In today's world, most of the time, we've got to teach them who God is, teach them what sin is, and get them converted. It's a much harder, we are more in the Greek mentality that Paul preached in than we are in Peter's mentality. So we look at this, and he says, they threw him in prison, verse 5, and it came to pass on the morrow that the, that the rulers and the elders and the scribes and Ananias the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said unto them, you rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined for the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he was made whole, be it known unto you all that, and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand before you whole. This is the stone which was set for not for your 
of your, your builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So this is the old statement. And note, note that the deck is stacked against them in the court. Caiaphas is there, Ananias is, uh, Annas is there, John, Alexander, and the kindred of the high priest. All right? This is a stacked court. <laughs> that all the judges are family to begin with, which was bad. All of them, you know, don't like Jesus, judging men who are using Jesus' name. Uh, so how would you like to go to court looking at those odds? <laughs> Uh, and that's what's going on in here. They got a whole bunch of people that don't like Jesus and don't like the name. They thought they'd gotten rid of Jesus. And now here's his disciples <laughs> preaching in Jesus' name, lifting him up, teaching that he had resurrected from the dead. And I'll remember when the story that Jesus was resurrected from the dead came, these guys that are their judges are the group that paid off the Roman leaders, so that the Romans would tell them while we slept, the body was stolen. All right? These are the same men that did this. <laughs> Out of the treasury of the, of the temple, these guys paid off the, the not necessarily, I'm sure they, sure they paid the soldiers, but they also had to pay not just the soldiers to lie, they had to pay off a whole string of commanders. Because for every one of those, there was somebody that was going to say, you're saying, you guys say you slept, you deserve to die. So they had to pay every single, and I'm sure the commanders cost a whole lot more than all of the, than that, tri that the, the group that was guarding them. Probably more than the group that was combining, you know, all of them combined. <laughs> all right? Because heads can roll. You know, this is a big deal. These are the ones sitting in charge of this trial. I did not say, and I did not look it up. John was a very popular name, so. And it just says, and John, and Alexander. And I didn't look them up for some strange reason. I don't know why. Usually I would do something like that. Yeah. I don't think. I don't know. I mean, I could probably find some speculation who it was. You know, for some reason, I didn't even think about it. Normally, I would think about that. Who are these guys? Yeah. I was paying more attention to Ananias and Caiaphas. All right, in verse 7, And when they had set them in the midst, they asked them, By what power or by what name have you done this? And remember, we talk a lot about name, and I, I keep emphasizing this because I don't remember anybody ever talking about what name means as I was growing up in the church. Name is all the reputation and position behind it. It's not just the name. When we ask for anything in Jesus' name, it's not just, you know, well, you know, I want, you know, God, I want a million dollars, I want a house on the mountain in Jesus' name. No, that is not, because that is not after his reputation. It is not after what he desires, so that's not even in his name, even though I put his name tagged on here. It's by what power, whose authority, basically, what name, whose authority are you teaching under? And what they really wanted them to say is one of the leaders in the, in the temple. Oh, well, they didn't want him to do that, but that's what they're asking. And who has given you the permission? Who has given you the authority to preach? 
and who are you teaching on? Remember, we've talked about this. Everybody that would switch around, you know, when you followed a rabbi, you got baptized into their name. You were put under their authority. You were learning their, their uh, teachings. So they're saying, okay, who is the rabbi that you're following? Basically is what they're saying. Or who gave you, which, which one of us in the temple gave you the authority? And in whose name or position and teachings are you teaching? And so there, this is a straightforward question. Very straightforward. And then it says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is a powerful message that he gives. And he goes, you rulers, the people, and the elders of this, if we this day be examined for the good deed done unto the infinite man, by what means he is made whole. All right? It says, if you're asking us how he was made whole, then be it known to you and all people in Israel that by the name of Jesus, and he didn't stop there, whom you crucified <laughs> of Nazareth, whom, is, whom God raised from the dead, even him, doth the, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. All right. He didn't even stop at Jesus of Nazareth. He, he kept going uh, because he's got Caiaphas and Annas there. Uh, by the way, guys, you put him on the cross. And God raised him from the dead. We have a pretty straightforward picture. And what boldness. What boldness. These guys have executed Jesus. And Peter's saying, by Jesus, whom you crucified and whom God rose from the dead, was this man made whole. And the thing is, the man is still there. He was, apparently, he was put in, in the hold overnight as well. Because he's still standing with them. And I'm sure they didn't call him back. Which is kind of good. They get, to, they get to disciple him all night long and tell him about Jesus, whose power this was. Um, and so this man stand here before you. And then he, gave, then he quotes uh, Psalm 118.22. This is the stone which was set at naught, which of your builders, which has become the head, stone, the head of the stone, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So he quotes to them a prophetic statement of the Messiah. And, huh? That's from Psalms 118. Psalm 118, uh, 22. Um, it's also quoted in Matthew 21, 42, where Jesus said, I am the stone. And it's quoted in Isaiah 28, 16. <laughs> So this is a very popular, it's known to be a messianic prophecy, at least by us. The Jews didn't really recognize it as a prophecy. But Jesus, and this all comes from a story of when they were building the temple and they put away the stone that was the cornerstone. And the cornerstone is either the base stone where everything stands or the corner of an arch. We don't know which one this one is. But it says there's a story of the stone that was rejected and set aside and lost. They couldn't find it because it had been rejected by the builders. And that's where this, that whole story comes in. It's a picture of Jesus, the cornerstone, the Messiah, being set aside and rejected. So he's quoting on this. And the, and the Jews understand it. The leaders understand this. And this would, again... When they claim that these guys have not had any training and they're ignorant, and we're going to see that in just a moment, that's that statement, it's amazing them. These guys are quoting scriptures that, and applying them in ways that they have not 
they have not thought of. They are not just repeating what other men have said. The rabbis very rarely ever taught something with authority. They might have combined several rabbis' views, or they, they were really leaning heavily on other things that had always been said. But now the Holy Spirit is coming in and leading new conclusions, new fillings to all, these, all of these things. And it's, it's blowing the minds of these leaders. All right? And, it says, and then, if that wasn't enough in verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other name. There is none other name under heaven given by men whereby you must be saved or redeemed. All right? Saved and redeemed are the same thing when we look at this. And they're telling them, you're not just automatically entering heaven. The Jews, for the most part, have, even to this day, this belief that I was born Jew, I'm going to heaven unless I do something really, really, really bad. I get to go to heaven because I am a Jew. And this is why Paul says just being a Jew is not of any great advantage. You have to accept the Messiah. And even in the Old Testament, we see over and over them being told, believe in God, go through the sacrifices, accept these things. And it's very important because this is them teaching these high up. I mean, especially these guys. They're the priests. They're the, they're the high priests. They're the, they're the top dogs. And they're saying, if you don't know Jesus, you're not saved. What a message. <laughs> you know, um, Peter is being right in their face. He has gotten a boldness from God that's a pretty amazing. This is the man that just... Four, you know, three, four, five months said he didn't know Jesus the third time to a little girl. He is in the temple talking in the face of the, the, the top people and being very bold. What happens when God comes into your life and fills you with the Spirit? You will be ready to speak and say and do amazing things. And this is the thing. And we hopefully we've all seen this, where we get a boldness because of the Holy Spirit. And so we look at this, and, and verse 13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man that was healed, standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside, the, of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, a notable mi miracle has been done by them, is manifest to all that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them <laughs> that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or to teach in the name of Jesus. So we're going to stop there for just a moment. So they look at Peter and John, verse 13, and it says they perceived. By sight, they looked at them and said that they were unlearned and ignorant. And the word here for ignorant is unschooled. All right? They're looking at them and thinking, we have all kinds of rabbis here that teach. They have not been schooled by any rabbi. 
And that's what they're looking at. These guys were not, don't, by this statement, don't think that these guys were dumb. These were businessmen. They had business smarts. They knew how to write contracts. They knew how to read. When you read this, they're not basically saying that these guys are, are stupid men. They're noting that they had not gone to what we would say seminary. All right, and that happens a lot when people look at somebody who's teaching and, and preaching and, and they'll look at them and go, well, what, what gives them the right to teach? What gives them? They, they've never been to seminary. They never went to Bible college. They never, that's what they're saying here. They're not saying that they're stupid men. They're looking at them and saying, they didn't go to any of our rabbi schools here. And the rabbi schools were set up that the rabbis would go around to various synagogues and look for the best of the best of the synagogues and then bring them to Jerusalem to teach. And they would go out and they'd find, because in, you normally followed in your father's footsteps. So they would go to the synagogue schools and watch people being trained for their first 12 years, and they would find somebody good, and they would call them into their school and teach them to be a rabbi. So for the next 18 years, they would sit under some rabbi learning. All right? And they note to them, these guys haven't done it. Now, Peter, we think and believe, was over 30 because of the fact that they asked him, do you and the rabbi Jesus pay your temple tax? And anybody over 30 had to pay, it, pay the temple tax. So we believe that Peter is over 30, and probably is. Most of the other disciples are younger men. So here they have somebody who's old enough to be a rabbi, but not had gone to rabbi school. And you've got a young man in John who is... And it's kind of interesting, Peter and John, we have the oldest of the disciples, by all of our understanding, and the youngest of our disciples standing in front of this crowd. How old is, is John? We believe that he was only 16 or 17 years old, maybe even as low as 13 or 14 when he followed Jesus. The disciples were young, we would say probably teenagers, no more than in their young 20s when, when they're following Jesus and other than Paul, uh, other than Peter. And they looked at the men, you know, they look at these guys, these guys are unskilled, untrained, unseminary trained, but there's a man standing next to them <laughs> that's been healed. And apparently they recognize him. They, they, they're, not, they're not looking at him and saying, uh, this is false. They're recognizing this is the man who's been laying at the door for years, that none of them could heal. None of them ever desired to heal him. They might have given him some money once in a while, but they're looking at him and they could say nothing against the miracle. These guys are in a rock and a hard place. What are you going to do? You know, you can't just beat these guys really easily because, because they healed somebody. <laughs> that is not, these guys are politicians. All right? They're not just religious leaders. They are politicians. They hold their position because the people allow it. And they're looking at this man who's healed, knowing that he was healed, knowing that 5,000 people are believing in this miracle. It's the talk of the town. It's not just in the temple. Them holding off overnight was bad because now word has gotten out. And it's amazing how fast news gets out when things happen. And overnight, there's a crowd. This, this lame man got healed at the temple. 
And they say, they put them away and they commune together. <laughs> it means they're, they're holding a little kabod over on the side, you know, and, and they're saying, what shall we do to these men? Because this is a big miracle. This is a big deal, notable miracle. This is a big deal. And it says, and it is manifest to all that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. All right? They tried to hide the resurrection because nobody saw it. This one, they're going, <laughs> the entire temple, everybody who was at the temple saw this man. They heard these guys claim that it is in the name of Jesus. What are we going to do? It's not like they found him at the end of the night and put him off the side and then they could spin it. And they're now in the process of what we call spin, trying to spin it into something that's going to make them look good. But they can't, because this one is pretty straightforward miracle. And so they tell them, uh, so they gather them good and they say, so it spreads no further among the, the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak no more in his name. And they call upon them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor to teach in the name of Jesus. And because they say they threatened them, there was probably the promise of, if you do this again, we will, you know, whatever the power they could do, beat them, scourge them, uh, throw them in prison for 30, day, you know, 30 days. The same things we're hearing in our day and age. If you don't do what we tell you to do, you're going to be punished and put into jail. You're going to be fined and all these things. These are what's going on to them right now. Verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than, than unto God, judge you. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people and all the men glorified God for that which was done, for the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. So Peter and John very boldly say, and, and it's kind of strange, he goes, should we obey you or God? And these are to the righteous leaders of the church, of, of, their, of their, what we would call church. Should we obey God or should we obey you? You judge. The people are watching. <laughs> what do they have to be able to do to say obey us? They would have to say, you're, you're not representing God. But they know that only God could heal the man, so they're having a problem here. If they tell them that it's not God, they're having to deny the miracle was done by God, which is the only one that could do the miracle. So they're having a big problem. <laughs> And so they just threatened them some more. <laughs> but again, we have a situation where they can't beat these two men and punish them in front of the people at this point in time. Because the people have seen the miracle. The people are on their side. If they try to beat Peter and John right now, they're going to have a riot. And riots in Jerusalem were not something that the Romans wanted and, and the the chief priests didn't want to riot because they're holding their power because Rome allows them to, to hold their power. So if there's a riot in the temple, Rome's going to come in and squash the riot and take them out of power and, and let other people take power. So they're in a rock and a hard place. They don't want them talking in the name of Jesus. Why? 
because they're not just elevating Jesus to a rabbi status. All right? They're not just raising Jesus to rabbi. And that would be one thing. If people are saying, we did this in the name of Jesus the rabbi, okay, we don't really like this rabbi, but you can do this. They're going, they declare that he is God. They're declaring he's Messiah. This bothers them. <laughs> well, well, they're pretty powerful compared to God. They're nobody. Yeah, right. They're, they're nobody compared to God. And they're basically saying, you tell us whether it's right. And then they say, we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. In other words, you deny that Jesus raised from the dead, but we saw him. We cannot be silent about what we saw. And this is where they're at right now. They're bold. They know that Jesus rose from the dead. And we know that as we look down history, all the disciples except for John are going to die martyrs' deaths. Some of them very cruel martyrs' death. One of them is quartered by being pulled apart by four animals in, every, in each direction. Many of them are run through by spears. Paul gets his head cut off. Uh, Peter is going to be crucified. We're going to see all these guys lose their lives because of what they saw and heard. Oh, we're just weeks after, after he rose. We've got, we have Jesus being raised from the dead three days after, after crucifixion. Fifty days after he died, we have Pentecost. And we don't have exactly how long this is, but we're only looking a couple months at this point. God is making the church grow fast. All right? And so I'm going to say you just have a few more months. So we're looking three, four months max. And it's probably less than two. All right, we're, you know, these guys, everything, it seems like everything they do in those early days is exciting. God is moving. Everywhere they're going, God is moving. God is talking. God is acting. And, you know, I kind of look at this because a lot of times, even for new Christians, new Christians get excited about God. And, and what ends up happening is usually when we first get saved, that's when we're most active for God because that's when we're most excited. We have had our sins lifted off. We've had the guilt removed. And we get excited about God and we're willing to talk about God even though we don't know anything about him and, and we're not afraid of not knowing anything about it because we have that experience that we know God. And then the more we get to know him and the longer we get to, we get a little afraid. What if I get asked questions I don't know? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? So I think right now we're in a place where these guys are excited. Jesus, we saw, we, and, and believe me, at this point in time, they're expecting Jesus to return at any moment. All right? And we see this over and over through the words. They're expecting Jesus to come back in a mighty way. They're, so they're building, they're building his kingdom. They're building his army so that when he comes back, we got an army ready to go. Not that we need him because he's got power over death. There's, you know, we don't need him, but we're going to build an army. They're getting very excited because they expect Jesus to come in their lifetime, which motivates them to build a church. Which is why even for us, it's closer for us to for Jesus' return. He probably very likely could come in our lifetime. That should motivate us as it did to the disciples to go out and witness and build the kingdom. So often it doesn't, but it should. Because this is their motivation. The Messiah is coming back. We want to be ready. We want to have his army. Because as they're following him all those days, 
They're expecting him to have a rebellion. They're expecting it because we are his first followers. We're going to be the, the cabinet. We're going to be the, the, the chief men in his administration. Uh, and they're expecting all of that. So they're building up this, this group to, to build up the Messiah's, the Messiah's army, basically. And that's how they're at. And they're excited. They're moving. The angel told them he's coming back. And he said, just as you saw him leave, he will return. So they're thinking, okay, we saw him leave. We will see him return. Even though the angel didn't say, you will see him return. He says, just as you saw him leave, he will return. And they're expecting him to be sent. And that's why most of them don't start writing their books. Most of the books in the, in the Bible aren't written until 40, 50, 60 AD when they start realizing uh, we're getting old. Maybe he's not coming in our lifetime. So they start writing out their eyewitness accounts so that people now will be able to read what they have to say. So, so is everybody else. That was definitely put on their heart by the Holy Spirit for them to write their eyewitness accounts. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the New Testament. Uh, and so, where did I leave off? Uh, we cannot, and they threw the threatened, and then they let them go. Because the people are on their side. They can't beat them. And they know where they're at. And it says, finding nothing on how they could punish them because of the people. If it hadn't been for the people on their side, they would have been beat. All right? And or worse. But because they have at minimum of 5,000 people on their side, there's nothing they can do at, at this moment. Uh, and... They also said, for the man was above 40 years old on whom the miracle had been shown. So this man was not young. All right, so they couldn't say he's old enough to give testimony. He's old enough to be considered fully adult. I mean, he's not even just over 12 years old and be an adult. He is over teaching age to be a leader. So they're having some issues on this. You know, you've got it. This man has been impotent for 40 years. He's been laid at the temple for most of his life, if not all of his life, begging. They know who he is. They know that he was definitely sick. He's not like when we're driving all around out here and watching the panhandlers and we wonder, are these people really homeless? Are they really in need? And when you see them you know, stuck at need work and, and it's the fifth year that they've been out on the same corner, you start wondering about, boy, you're really, you know, uh, how long is it that you can, how hard are you looking for work? How, where, where are you staying? Because you don't look that terribly dirty that you haven't had a home for, four, for five years. This man they knew, laid at the gate every morning, picked up by family members or friends every evening. They know that he, who he is. And he's over 40, so there's nothing really they can do about it. And it's like this man has a great testimony. Verse 23, and being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God in one accord and said, Lord, you are God, which has made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of, of your servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And of a truth against your holy child Jesus, whom you have anointed, 
Both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever your hand and your counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant anew to your servants that with, with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of the Holy Child is Jesus. And when they had prayed and the, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were fi all filled with the Holy Spirit when they spoke the word of God with boldness. All right. They get released. The first thing they do is go to church, basically. And they report what has happened. And I kind of wish that what happened would happen in today's world more often. All right. They came in, they told them what the priests and elders had done and said when they got done, the people lifted up their voice to God in one accord and gave praise to God. You know what happens in most churches today when somebody says that they have suffered at this? Well, you know you shouldn't have said that way. You should have been, you should have been more careful. You know, you, you know, who do you think you are to be to shaking things up? We need to have more of this boldness. You spoke in Jesus' name and you were threatened. Praise God. And I think this is going to start happening when we start breaking down the church because right now the church is full of tares, the weed and the tares. The church right now is full of people who look like Christians, say they're Christians, and aren't. And as pressure comes on, those who aren't Christians are going to drift away from this church, because the, not this church, but the church, because it's going to be too much pressure. And then we'll see more of this going on. Praise God, you, you spoke up with boldness and God delivered you. We need more of this kind of stuff going on. Thank God that you speak up. Thank God that you were, that you were persecuted. Thank God that you went to prison for, the, for 40 days because of what you said, or six days, or, or six months, or whatever it might be, because you spoke up. And this is their attitude on it praise God and it says they lifted up their voice with one accord and said the Lord our God has who has made heaven and the sea who they're identifying who God is the creator the the kings of the earth stood up and the rulers gathered together against him and his Christ all right and then let's see did I skip something verse 25 yes and by the mouth of your servant David, he has said, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain things? And the kings of the earth stood and the rulers stood up. This is a quote from Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Then the rulers stand up against you. you know, and this is what he says. You know, This is true. Jesus came. And Herod, Pontius Pilate, and the rulers of the people of Israel all gathered together and stood up against him. They understand. They're starting. And it's amazing how the Holy Spirit is working upon the church to tie in what they know from the scriptures. This is one of the reasons I love reading the Old Testament and seeing Jesus on virtually every page of the book. Because he's lifted up and he's, every bit of the Bible is about Jesus from beginning to end. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, it's all about Jesus. And we see them getting excited. Yes, 
God, you raised up. Your, the enemies rose up against him, and they failed. They failed to stop you from, from your kingdom. For to do whatsoever your hand and your counsel commanded before to be done. So again, we get this picture of predestination. God, you made a promise, and it is being fulfilled, and it's being done exactly like you predetermined it. They're starting to understand now. Jesus had been telling them all of his, his time, including really impressed upon them at the end, that he was going to die and resurrect. They didn't understand it, but now they're starting to see it. Yes, he told us. Remember when he said, he said this, he said this, he said this. He quoted this verse, he quoted this verse. I can't imagine, I can't imagine what it'd be like to have Jesus, who wrote the book, being the one teaching you the book even though they didn't understand it at the time that he was teaching them. But so many times it's true that when we're taught, we don't always comprehend everything that we've been, we're being taught. It's not until later when the Holy Spirit taps into what we've been taught. And I've shared with you so many of these memory verses that I've memorized, it's only been, you know, it took only 40 years for some of them to actually get where I understood the power of the verse and the, and the reality of the verse, but it was in my heart. And now they're starting to come really real and you, and you memorize and you think about and you meditate and all of a sudden these verses say, wow, this is a verse that means something. And hopefully as we read our Bibles, things will jump out at us and we're going, this is, this is the verse. Never saw that verse before, but man, it's jumping off the page and I need to live it. And this is where they're at right now. These guys did not understand what Jesus was saying. I'm going to go die. And you know, matter of fact, Peter goes, no, you're not. You're not, you're not going to die. And he says, give you behind me, Satan. You know, it's, uh, so they're going all of these things. And it says, for to do whatsoever your hand and your counsel determined before you or pre-decided or pre-decided. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching forth your... Their, your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done in, by the name of your holy child Jesus give us boldness do not let us be silent this is a prayer that we need more and more in our day give us boldness and signs do you realize that God still wants to do miracles today he heals people. He brings about healing. He brings about signs. It's kind of an interesting world that we're seeing. People are moving back to so much demon possession. We're moving back to so much I true idol worship. We are bringing back the old gods, and people are worshiping them. At the prison, we have many people who, who worship Thor, the the Viking god of war. There's a whole bunch of them that worship that. It's going on, and it's not just the prison, it's everywhere where, where, where these idols are being brought back. Demonic possession are being all over the place. The church needs to get back on, on track and say the Holy Spirit wants to, to move as well and bring miraculous things. And we see that as this happens, we're going to see the church doing great 
things, miracles that people cannot deny. They will, of course, this way the nature of people, they're going to try to deny it. But things are going to be seen and people are going to be done. And the church is going to start it and the Antichrist will come and produce miracles to make people think that he is God. Now whether that will start during the seven years or before that, I don't know, but there's going to be the miracles that he performs to say, I've resurrected, I've done these, and he's going to have his prophet come before him, and he's going to say, this is my Elijah. Elijah comes before the, before the Messiah, and they're going to have a prophet that preaches and does miracles so that the Antichrist can come, and then there will be the, the image that comes alive that will be his, his, the, thir- the third part of his unholy trinity, that God has a holy trinity, he will have an unholy trinity. All of these things will happen. Most of it during the tribulation period and probably all of it during the tribulation period. But before that, I really believe the church is going to come back to power. As people are pushed away, the, the deadwoods pushed away, the church, the true church, will recognize and display power. And I am not a cessationist. That means somebody who believes the Holy Spirit stopped working in the first century. Because my God's the same yesterday, today, forever, and I have seen the miracles. I have seen healings. I have seen miracles of God happen. And I know that they still happen today, and I know that God is waiting to do some big miracles. Now, I know there's lots of charlatans out there as well, playing games and trying to make things look bad. And people point to them over and over, and they, in the name of Christ, they do things. And they're destroying, they're destroying the reputation of Jesus. But they can't because he is God. But God is going to move in a powerful way before the end days. And we're starting to see him move again. And the churches that deny this are, are not following after God. And there's some good churches that deny it. You know, there's some people who pretty much teach the truth other than the power. And without the power, we have nothing. These disciples had the power of God which gave them the strength and the boldness and the miracles that went along with it. We will start seeing these things when people get saved, when demons are cast out and demonic activity is kicking up in the high gear. The more we start getting into idolatry worship, the more the demonic activities are going to happen and the demonic world is going to be rampant during the seven-year tribulation period when the Antichrist reigns. So we've got all of this coming in, and we need to understand we have power. We have power to be bold. We have power for these miracles. And it says, and then they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. An amazing thing. On Pentecost, the room was shaken, and the 500 in there were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now I don't know how many people are in this room, but the room is shaken again, and there's a refilling of the Holy Spirit. We need to be praying for the Holy Spirit to keep us full and see what he can do. He wants us to be, keep filling us. He wants it, it's not a one and done. He lives in us, but he's saying, I want to fill you. I want to fill you to, the, to overflowing. He dwells in us. And when he is in us and we recognize him, we have power. We have 
ability because it is supernatural ability. And when we speak his name and we teach for him and he starts speaking through us and he starts doing things through us, miracles happen. God is still waiting to do miracles. We are in an age where people are waiting and they're, they're saying just what they said so often in the book of Judges. Where is the God who produced these miracles? Where is the God who did these, these miracles against Egypt? Where is the God who, who uh, split the Red Sea? Where is the God who split the, the, the River Jordan? Where is the God that brought down the, the walls around Jericho? We're hearing the same thing from the church right now. Where is the God that did all these things? He is where he's always been, waiting for his people to come to him so that he can work. Because he works through people. And we repent and we come to a revival with him and we re renew our lives and we bring the Holy Spirit inside us and he starts pouring out of us and he does great and miraculous things. And this is the beauty of what's going to happen. There is going to come a time when people go, God, we need you. We repent. And we may end up in prisons and all of these things. And I've been thinking a lot lately about, you know, all of this pandemic has pushed people online for their church and everything. And by going online, they have been now identified who every church and member is and everybody who is sympathetic to church because they've gone online to look at church and to listen to teachers. So that when the move comes against the church, they know exactly where to go for every single person to be arrested. Now, Having said that, and we've been online for a long time, the, the, the genie's out of the bottle, the Pandora's box is open, there's no way to not do it anymore. So we need to get as many people reached as we can with it anyway. But I was just thinking about every one of these people now are tracked and marked. It will make the McCarthy era look like a Sunday picnic, and if you don't remember who McCarthy is, he's the one in the 50s that went after anybody who might be, be communist. And if you had any suspicion, then they went after everybody that knew you and accused them of being communist. It, everything that will come down will be, make him look like it was a Sunday picnic with no, nothing going on. And you know, but there's nothing we can do about it. it. Christians will be rounded up. When the time comes, Christians will be rounded up. Yeah. You know, but all of that stuff is tracked and they know who's done it and they will know who Christians are. And that's not a bad deal. I mean, it's, it's just what it is. Yeah, but it struck me just the other day because I've been thinking a lot about how so many churches are, and so many church leaders are saying this virtual church is our future. I hate to think that that's going to be our future because virtual is not real. And a virtual church is not a real church. There's not a, nobody that's going to put their arms around you when you're suffering. You know, they might type you some words, but it's, it's not the same thing. Virtual church is not real. And God says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together and so much more as you see the day approaching. I am not going to go virtual church. And I'm very much in the virtual world. We have our website. We have a great presence on the, on the web. But virtual church does not replace church. And I will tell any of these leaders the same thing. The, a virtual church, yes, you may be saying that you're reaching millions of people, and it, may, it has its good side. You are touching some lives, 
but it does not replace interpersonal relationship where people are coming together one in one accord and worshiping God. And so we need to keep that in mind. And as we're hearing more and more about this new virtual world that we're living in, we watch, and we see it on TV all the time, this virtual groupings. We had a virtual Democratic convention. We're going to have a virtual Republican convention. You know, it, not a real thing, just a bunch of people all on the, on the pictures on the screen. I was watching the other day a virtual town meeting at some, in some town. And they had 20 pictures of the, of the town council or something like that. It might have been only been 16, but a bunch of pictures on the screen. And these guys trying to talk over each other because they're not used to how to do, how to do a, virtual, a virtual meeting. And it's like, wow, why don't you just get in a room and spread yourselves apart? <laughs> you know, uh, but everything is moving to this virtual. Why? Because Satan wants the world separated from each other. It is so much easier when the people that I know might be someplace but not, don't know where I'm at. I got arrested, but nobody knows where I'm at. You know, oh, he's missing. He got arrested. Oh, well, I'm sorry. You know, nobody knows where I'm at. Nobody know, you know, that's the virtual world out there. Where are these people living? You don't know. You cannot truly reach out and help them. We need the body of Christ and ministering one to another and being able to just reach out and when we know somebody, and I mean really know, we've been building this virtual world where we have, on Facebook, I have 15,000 friends. Who do you know? One or two of them. <laughs> you know, I know a little bit about a whole bunch of them, but I don't know who they all are. I just keep accepting friend requests, so I got lots of friends. But you don't know hardly any of them. You know, and this is why this whole world that's been being built up this whole world of Facebook and Twitter has led to this idea that we can have virtual church without relationship, which is what Satan wants. No relationship, no help when people hurt. Yeah, you can type in a nice little message and everything, but there's a big difference between reading and, and have somebody give you that little hug and really cares about you and knows who you are and can lift you up when you fall. And, you know, it's very important. And yet we're drifting more and more, and we're hearing more. And, I'm, and I get sick every time I read these. And there's some big names in the Christian world that are talking about how virtual church is going to be the future. Big names, people I listen to as good teachers don't realize what they're saying because they're not technologically savvy to know what it is that they've said. All they know is somebody, some tech guy's telling them, you had three million people listening to you. Oh, wonderful, I'm reaching out to the world. They don't understand the downside of what they're doing. And I'm not saying, so don't get me wrong, I'm not saying they're bad, I'm just saying they don't understand. And it's good, I mean, it's, we're going to take advantage of it as, while we have it. There's a real downside to it. And we want them to keep moving in this. The last, last couple of verses... They, got, they were excited, they were filled by the Holy Spirit, they got bold or persuaded and uh, fearless and confident. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, neither said any of them aught of these things that he possessed of his own, 
but they had all these things in common and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked for as many as were possessors of lands and houses, sold them and brought the price of the things which were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and distribution was made to every man according as he had need. And Yosef, who was by the apostles and was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite and, and, the, and of the uh, country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. These verses are used by a lot of people to promote socialism. Now, the thing about this, you also have to understand what is going on in the church in Jerusalem. And still to this day for a Jew, when they convert to Christianity following Jesus, they were basically decided by their family that they were dead and, and didn't own anything and people wouldn't go to their business, wouldn't go to their shops. The church in Jerusalem was having a hard time. Now on one side, I think, Thousand, we know there's at least 8,000 of them. They should be able to support themselves fairly well with 8,000. But Jerusalem's a very large town. But basically, they're coming together and they're saying, okay, I've got some stuff. I'm going to distribute it. This may be coming to the church in the near future. That those who are calling on the name of Jesus might lose their jobs and lose all the stuff that they're in debt to. And there may be people that own homes that need to help the church, either by selling their stuff or bringing people into their homes and saying, we are now going to be one again. There may be a time when this kind of stuff happens again. It happened a lot in communist countries where people lost their jobs, they lost their possessions. They, you know, when the government ha owns your house and you lose your job and you're not being supported, you can get kicked out. There may come a time again when we're in this place where the church literally must help the, the members of the church survive. And there may be a time when somebody owns a house and says, I've got three extra bedrooms, let me bring some families and things from the church and help them out. And then somebody else is going to have administrative skills to be able to organize and, and control. We have somebody who's a farmer that can, can build, you know, can, can grow the stuff and share it with everybody. There may come a time when we're back to this. And it's needed. But this is not necessarily God saying socialism is the right way to go. <laughs> All right? It was valuable to them at the time. And it lays the thing. And I'm going to say, even though it says many of them sold it, I don't believe that every single person sold their possessions. Otherwise, they'd have no place to live. All right? Somebody had houses <laughs> to live in. Somebody had stuff to feed them. But many were selling their extra properties, their extra places, their 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 home in the country, <laughs> saying, well, okay, well, the people are suffering, I'm going to help. And Barnabas sells a piece of property and brings it to the church, which is going to lead us into chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, the, one of the most interesting chapters of the New Testament where we see the God of judgment <laughs> is still there. And there is a shift. There really is a shift between the Old and New Testament in the Old Testament, we generally see God as hard and cold, but we see a lot of his love and compassion even in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see a lot of God's loving kindness side, but we do see his judgment side on a couple of occasions. God has not changed, 
But with Jesus dying, he is now able to show us more of his loving, compassionate side, his gracious side, but his holiness and righteousness is still prevalent. And we need to understand all of this is going on, and God is powerful. And we need to be making these decisions that they're making. They made the decision, God, give us boldness. We need to pray, God, give us boldness. And I've said this many times, our decision on what we're going to do during hard times is made before we're in the hard time. The time to decide what you're going to do is not when you're in the middle of the trial. Because if you haven't decided that you're going to be honest to God, you won't be honest to God when you're in the middle of the trial. You know, the time to decide, am I going to be uh, pure, is not when you're in the back seat of the car. Uh, it's too late at that point. You should never have gotten into the back seat of the car. The time to say, am I going to speak up with God and be ready to speak for God, is not when I'm facing the crowd that's going to beat me. I have to have already decided that I'm going to stand for God before. Otherwise, when I'm standing in front of people who are going to beat me, I'm going to deny. We must get down to the tax and say, God, give me boldness to speak. And we are looking at those kind of things right now in this day and age that we need to get bold. We need to prepare to be bold and know that we're going to and say, God, Give me the strength. Give me the ability. Give me the desire to stand for you. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, we do ask that you fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you give us the desire to be bold, to be outspoken for you in spite of threats, in spite of dangers, that you will give us holy boldness to go forward and lift you up in all things and see you do mighty things because you still want to do great and mighty things. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening, friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening, and have a wonderful day.